Welcome to Legendary Bites, a podcast dedicated to two things we love, sports and brevity. I'm Seth. And I'm Charlie. Each episode, we're going to bring you a bite-sized sports story in under 15 minutes that we find fascinating, important, or just absurd. Now, with brevity in mind, let's get going. Charlie, what's on tap today? Today, we are going to talk about the worst jersey sponsorship in sports history. Contrary to popular belief, no, it wasn't when famed Italian soccer club AC Milan donned their Poo Jeans branded jerseys. But rather, today's story comes from a much more sinister source, Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. All right, before we get into our story today, let's take a broader look at the Jersey sponsorship landscape as a whole. Charlie, can you walk us through how that looks? Okay, so sponsorships generally make up about a quarter of teams' revenue. Tickets, merchandise, concessions all rely on fans. Sponsorships are really just relationships between the sports teams and local businesses, so they're a little bit easier to come about. They can take many different forms, but I'd say the most recognizable one is the Jersey sponsorship. This is very common across all European sports. Why... Don't American sports leagues have more of these? Tradition, Charlie. Americans love tradition. Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. The idea of a Yankee hat with a Skittles logo on the side, I think, would be very offensive. (laughs) I hate the Yankees, but that is maybe the closest I would get to buying a Yankees jersey. I wouldn't, because I also hate the Yankees, but, you know, to each their own. Um, It's amazing advertising for brands. You know, if you look up all the great Ronaldo goals from history, many of them have a Fly Emirates logo or a Jeep logo in them. When Ricky Bobby won the Daytona 500, you think of kind of that Wonder Bread logo on his car. Shake and bake, baby. So the origins of Jersey sponsorship, they're pioneered by a Uruguayan football club in the 50s. A more fun example took place in Germany in the 1970s, a team in the Bundesliga decided to test the boundaries of jersey sponsorship by crafting a deal with Jägermeister. The league says it's a no-go, they reject the idea, so the club decides to get creative and they change their actual club logo to the Jägermeister logo. The league then decides that there's no holding it back, they change their rules, and they decide to allow for jersey sponsorships from there. It's just a legendary move. My favorite example of jersey sponsorships, though, is actually from 2004 with Atletico Madrid and Columbia Pictures. Now, their deal got struck to promote basically any movie that came out for Columbia Pictures that year. So 2004, it was Hitch, Spider-Man 2, Spanglish, and White Chicks. These European soccer players would change their kit, you know, almost monthly to reflect these big movie logos across their chest. It was amazing. Diego Simeone never would have allowed such things. The trend is picking up in the U.S. You know, the MLS and the WNBA have, you know, full-on jersey sponsorships on the front of their jerseys. More recently, the NBA has allowed sponsorship patches on their jerseys, and the NHL is now exploring adding logos to their helmets as well. It's like people only do things because they get paid. And that's just really sad. So now that we have a little bit of background on Jersey sponsorships, let's dive right into uh, the worst instance of that in history. So our story starts in Germany in the early 80s, when a man by the name of Heinz Weifenbach purchases ECD Iserlohn, 
a kind of fledgling professional hockey team in Germany. To give a little background or Weifenbach round on Weifenbach, he's a real estate developer. Physically, he's a very, you know, big and gregarious man. He wears this long leather trench coat, kind of like a duster, sports a mustache, smokes cigars. Sounds like an old school movie detective. <laughs> exactly. Um, and his ownership style is gregarious, too. He's kind of involved with the team on every facet, like Jerry Jones. He starts to recruit internationally, so he's pulling in players from Canada to make the team better, and he's a fixture in the locker room. This guy, Hines, wants a championship more than anything, and on occasion, he takes things a bit too far. Uh, like in one instance, when he uh, pulled out a gun during a game on his team to threaten them to play better. I think we should all be grateful that Bobby Knight uh, didn't have a concealed carry permit uh, on the sidelines in the games. It's sort of amazing that he is carrying a gun. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit he, more about that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Heinz, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So Heinz's hijinks actually start to pay off. And in 1986, the team is on the rise and they make it to the league semifinals. But in 1987, the next year, uh, they're nearly bankrupt. So it turns out that the team owes nearly $3 million in back taxes. And that's actually why Heinz carries a gun. He's scared of all of his creditors. And those creditors, specifically the tax office, start to come knocking and physically knocking too, Charlie. Where's the money, Lebowski? Bunny says you're good for it. They show up at the players' houses asking them to see their financial contracts or any really financial documents. And Heinz's money man, whose name is, I kid you not, Merlin the Magician tells the players to essentially lose all their financial documents, not show the tax office anything. So the tax office starts confiscating whatever it can from players. TVs, leather coats, baseball gloves, cars, anything. Heinz, meanwhile, he's reassuring the league it's all under control. You know, they had sponsors. They BMW, a glassware company, Easterlone Pilsner. They had sponsors kind of throughout their kit, but those weren't really paying the bills, clearly. And pretty soon the tax office starts to turn up the heat. They show up at practice, they bolt the locker room doors, um, and it becomes clear that if the team couldn't play, they couldn't really avoid bankruptcy. So what does our guy Hines do? He hatches a plan, drums up a list of contacts from a nearby mayor who kind of had a knack for uh, getting some shady money from the Middle East, and Hines boards a flight to Libya. When he lands down at the airport, he's met with fanfare, dancers, tents, this whole kind of get-up, and there waiting for him uh, on the tarmac is Colonel Gaddafi, the mad dog of the Middle East himself. So, Charlie, give me a little background. Uh, who, who is Gaddafi? Okay, so Gaddafi really needs several hours to explain, but I'll, I'll just do a quick version. He's a Libyan revolutionary. He's an Arab nationalist. He is ostensibly a socialist, although it's a little complicated. And uh, after taking power in the end of the 1960s in Libya, he rules the country with an iron fist until um, 2011, when he is uh, dragged through the streets. He's really kind of a, a, a hot button Everywhere, but especially in Germany, where he has orchestrated the bombing of a nightclub in Berlin the year before in an attack that targeted U.S. troops. He very famously wrote all of his political philosophies in this book that he called The Green Book. They made a movie about The Green Book, right, a few years ago? This is different, but equally as offensive. Um, <laughs> it is sort of a, a, the totality of all of his 
political philosophies, and it's all over the map. It explains what he thinks about the economy, about politics, about women's role in society. He uh, demeans sports as a distraction and a waste of money, which is very funny given the context. Um, And Heinz is not really put off by any of these political philosophies or the war crimes. He needs money. I need more money. We don't have any I can't compete against a $120 million payroll with $38 million. Negotiations are pretty brief, but a deal gets struck. $900,000 from Gaddafi to the team, and Gaddafi becomes the official sponsor of a German professional hockey team. Heinz has a new lease on life, goes back to Germany, tells his team they can play hockey, they have a new sponsor, and their familiar blue and white jerseys now feature a green rectangular book with yellow writing on the cover. M. Gaddafi, Das Grünbuch. Das Grünbuch. The players, they don't know much about Gaddafi or Das Grünbuch. And overall, they're just relieved that their season can continue. But little did they know, though, the story of Das Grünbuch emblazoned on their jerseys was already gaining international media attention. The first sign that something was kind of strange came uh, after one of their skates right after that, a, uh, a call was waiting for some of the players in their locker room from one uh, NBC News' Tom Brokaw. So it's December 4th, 1987, and Easter plays their first game with these new jerseys. Now, the crowd capacity of their stadium is 4,900 people, and for this first game back, there are over 6,000 fans. It's just a wild atmosphere. Holy shit, dude, there's a lot of people here. I'm getting nervous, Charlie. Yeah, you might throw up when you get out there, you know, from the nerves. Some in the crowd are dressed as Gaddafi. They're wearing brown and golden robes. Bruce Hardy, one of the Canadians, remembers the game as being, quote, a zoo. He said it was the most amazing atmosphere he'd ever seen in his life. And Easterlone rides that atmosphere and wins the game uh, with these new jerseys. So everything's going well, right? Wrong. <laughs> After the win, reality sinks in. And sports figures from across the spectrum are speaking out about the sponsorship. Hans Hansen, a name that I promise I didn't make up, is the president of the West German Sports Federation, is quoted as saying the team was overstepping the limits of political good taste. And he said all sports would suffer from the consequences of such political insanity. Heinz, for his part, starts to battle the legality of the sponsorship with the, with the German Hockey Federation and, and your Hans Hansens of the world. Uh, while the team travels to Frankfurt for their next game. Upon arrival in Frankfurt, there are protesters. They're met with riot police. They even get a bomb threat briefing from an anti-terrorism team. So tensions are high before the game, and they eventually end up boiling over. The players on ECD Easterlone hold a meeting and decide to take their fate and integrity into their own hands. They hold a vote, and with the outcome being that the team will wear their old jerseys instead of the new Green Book versions. Eventually, Hines is told of their decision, and he gets it, but he lets them know that this is their last game. Without the Green Book sponsorship, they won't have a team. And sure enough, uh, Gaddafi pulls his sponsorship after the game, and the team goes bankrupt. You know, they say the brightest stars burn the quickest, but the same is true with horrible Gaddafi jersey sponsorships. And the team, you know, for their part, goes uh, through various iterations and bankruptcies before being refounded in 2000 as the Easterlone Roosters. Uh, since then, they seem to have found some level of financial stability. And what happened to Weifenbach, our uh, gun-toting, detective-looking character? 
Weifenbach uh, ends up skipping town and becomes the chairman of a lower-tier hockey club elsewhere in Germany. He eventually wins his championship with this new team and later ends up going to prison for tax evasion. As another hockey legend, Herb Brooks once said, The name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. At the time, Brooks obviously wasn't talking about jersey sponsorship. He was referring to, you know, individual identity versus team identity. But he was literally correct in a way that he probably never intended. Where there's money to be had and space for a sponsorship, generally, over time, a sponsor will be found. Sports teams, at the end of the day, are businesses. Businesses need money to operate. And unless the players or fans revolt like they did here, the sponsor's logo can become more important than the dignity of the players who are forced to wear and represent it. Which means that if you play professional soccer in Spain, you could end up with a white chick's movie logo across your chest. That is exactly right. You know, players really rarely have a choice in any of these matters. But in this one strange instance, when a Libyan dictator wanted so desperately for people to read his book, and the owner of a hockey team wanted so desperately just to play hockey and to get his paper, though that would usually be the end of the story, this time, the players decided to rewrite the last chapter, even if it did cost them their team. to our producer Patrick Buddy, to Jesse Rose for his design talents, and to the current ECD Iserlone Roosters for not being sponsored by terrorists. Follow us on all things social at legendarybytes underscore. That's at legendarybytes underscore for a lot more interesting nuggets from each story. Do you have a great story idea? If so, shoot us an email at legendarybytes at gmail.com. We would honestly love to hear from you. And finally, subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to get more great 15-minute stories on sports, history, and everything in between.